And we're back. After four months, that seemed to have flown by for me. But if that one thread on the Facebook group is anything to go by, have crawled along for some of you, I'm raring to go. But first, as usual, let's get some of the housekeeping out of the way. In the last episode, I asked you folks to consider supporting the show on Patreon, and I'm immensely grateful to those of you who heeded the call. So I want to give a shout out to my new patrons who signed up during our hiatus. Mandy Peterser, Kirsty Ainley, Melanie Hillier, Belinda Levinson, and Nicole Engelbrecht over at True Crime South Africa. Also, Frank Olivanisi, who joined this month. I cannot thank you enough for your support. I also want to just give a shout out to Anna Seitz and Stephanus LaRue, my two existing patrons, for sticking by me while I took this much-needed break. In other news, there is a ton of developments that are happening now that we are back. The biggest one being that ACMQ is now on Discord. Some of you have already joined, which is awesome, and I hope to see a lot more of you soon. But for those of you who have no idea what Discord is, there is a lengthy post on the Facebook group explaining what it's all about and how you can get on board. Hell, even my mother is now on Discord which just proves how easy it is to use. You can also check out the show notes for the official ACMQ Discord server invite link and join through that. That same group post will also let you know that I have bid farewell, for the most part, to social media. This is yet more reason to dive onto Discord and there is so much planned in the coming days, weeks and months. I honestly cannot wait to share ACMQ 2.0 with you all. It's going to be epic fun. In other news, my mic bombed out, possibly due to lack of use over the hiatus, and I needed to replace it. I'm hoping with this new one the audio is acceptable, but I now also have some funky new tools to play with in audio and video editing, so I'm cautiously optimistic that all will be well. However, If it truly sounds like crap, I apologize in advance, and I will do my best to get it sorted out as soon as possible if needs must. But you're not here to hear about me waffle on about what's happening in the background. You're here for murder and mayhem and all that fun stuff. And do I have all of that and more for you today? So, let's get into it. Crime Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa, intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. If you need to talk to someone, please see our show notes for the contact numbers of crisis helplines around South Africa. Welcome to A Crime Most Queer, I'm NJ Hawkeby. So, I know I promised you an episode with no deaths for this first one, but while writing that script, I went with a particular tone, and then I started wandering down this one rabbit hole and realized that my tone was wholly inappropriate, because I have a warped sense of humor. But, I draw the line of poking fun at mental health. Unless, of course, it's my own. Then it's open season, because who better to poke fun at me than... Well, me. Long story short, 
There was no way in hell I was going to salvage that script. It needs a complete rewrite. Although, I have been asked not to discard the sitcom version of this episode. I told you it was wholly inappropriate. But I'll save that for a bonus episode for my patrons later on down the line. Anyway, panicking, I hit the interwebs. I was looking for a case that I had never heard of, one that was pretty cut and dried, one that had as few rabbit holes as possible, and one that I felt I really, really connected with. The case I found ticked every single one of those boxes. Sadly, it doesn't have a satisfying conclusion, but it definitely left a mark. What it didn't do is get the coverage it should have, at least not outside the USA, in the wake of that other tragedy back in 2016, which, let's be honest here, has been covered by everyone six ways to Sunday. There are a ton of other podcasts that have covered the case, so I'm not about to rehash it here. But check the show notes for links to pods that deal with the Pulse Massacre. I really, really should have heard about this case back in 2016. It was poignantly relevant, but I didn't. Maybe you didn't either. So let's rectify that, shall we? Before we do that, however, I need to warn you that this one gets pretty gruesome, and I have zero intention of holding anything back on the details. To do so would be a disservice to the memories of the people who lost their lives. Yes, people. This was a massacre. Not your standard blood and guts slaughter. But in my opinion, what happened that night was far, far worse. Also, for reasons I'll get into at the end of this one, I've split the story into two. But stick around to the end, I have an announcement that will hopefully make up for forcing you to wait for part two. So, let's dive in. But, gird your loins, honey. This ain't gonna be no Sunday school picnic. The year was 1973. The city was New Orleans, Louisiana. The Stonewall Inn riots in New York were still very fresh in the collective minds of the American queer community. Gay pride celebrations were still quite a new thing, but had sprung up, commemorated on the last weekend in June in most American cities. But New Orleans was not one of them. On the outskirts of the French Quarter stands an unassuming three-story building that, back in 73, was home to two drinking establishments. At street level, the Germani Lounge, or the Germani as it is now known. Yes, it still exists catered to a predominantly straight crowd. And the upstairs lounge, one floor above, obviously, serviced the gay community. The third floor offered low-cost lodging, often used by sailors and visitors to the city looking to save a few bucks on accommodation, but still be close enough to Bourbon Street. Sunday at the upstairs lounge was popular, with the regular beer bust attracting a vibrant crowd, And that Sunday, June the 24th, 1973, was no different. Just over 100 people filled the joint, taking full advantage of the all-you-can-drink draft beer for a dollar special that ran between 5 and 7 p.m. When the special ended, a number of the patrons went on their way, either off home, out to dinner, or to find cheap booze elsewhere. But while reports vary on exact numbers, somewhere between 60 and 90 people 
stuck around and continued their revelry. 22-year-old David Gary, known affectionately as Piano Dave, was entertaining the crowd, playing popular songs of the day, much like he did at his regular job as the lobby pianist at the Marriott Hotel across the road. Around him, upstairs regulars would join in, singing along. Francis Dufresne was on a first date with Eddie Warren. Eddie had come to the upstairs lounge with his brother James and their mother Inez. Some reports claimed that the brothers were part-time gay-for-pay hustlers and their mother a gay mother hen. But it was common knowledge that when they were at the upstairs lounge for the beer bust, they were always off-duty. So I'm not exactly convinced that their homosexuality was entirely economic. An African-American gentleman, Reginald Adams, and his white partner, Ricky, a trans woman who, since transitioning, now goes by Regina, and as such, I'll be referring to her by that name from here on, including using she-her pronouns, had found a welcoming home at the upstairs lounge in a mostly unwelcoming to interracial couples, even amongst the queer community, southern state. The two were sitting with Adam Forno, the boyfriend of bartender and general manager Buddy Rasmussen. The four had plans to go out to dinner later. Over behind the bar counter, Buddy was tending to customers, with the help of Rusty Quinton, the busboy on duty. And, as the place filled up, fellow busboy Hugh Cooley jumped in and began his shift early. Reginald signalled to Buddy that he needed another beer, and Buddy got to work, tapping the draft, as Reginald leaned over to Regina and asked how much cash she had on her. She replied by saying, not much, and Reginald said he would run home a short walk away and get the checkbook. Regina told him that she had done it, as he had just ordered a drink and she had just finished hers. Reginald agreed, and Regina excused herself. As she made her way to the door, she passed 47-year-old computer programmer Luther Boggs, another regular, seated at the end of the bar, closest to the door, with his friend Jean Gosnell. He asked if Regina was leaving, and she replied that she would be back shortly. She opened the heavy door, stepped out onto the landing, and the door swung shut behind her. Buddy insisted that the door stay closed. It kept the cool air from the air conditioners mounted at the windows, in the venue. That would be the last time Luther would see Regina again. At 7.56pm, the buzzer at the front entrance sounded. This was not unusual, as taxi drivers would often alert bar staff that they were downstairs, waiting to pick up their passengers. Buddy called out to the crowd, announcing that whoever had ordered a taxi, it had probably arrived. Nobody reacted. Nobody made their way to the door. Obviously, somebody was just fucking around with the buzzer. Then it sounded again. And again. And again. And again. Eventually, Buddy walked over to Luther and asked him to check who was messing with the buzzer and get them to knock it off. Luther left his seat and headed for the door, while the rest of the clientele largely ignored the exchange between the two men. They largely ignored Luther reaching for the door handle. They largely ignored him twisting the knob and swinging the door open. But they couldn't ignore the wall of flames that rushed through the door, igniting everything they touched. 
The year was 1973, fire codes were still largely ineffectual or totally non-existent, and the lush carpet, the drapery, the wood panelling, the beefcake posters, the ornate wallpaper flocked with rayon, a substance made from regenerated cellulose, usually the pulp of eucalyptus trees. Each did their part in turning this home away from home for a largely marginalised community into a veritable tinderbox. Within seconds, the entire room was up in flames. Within minutes, 16 to be exact, 29 people were dead, their burnt remains scattered around the gutted room, many piled up against safety bars placed across the large windows by a previous tenant, ironically to prevent people from falling out and suffering injury. One charred corpse, that of Reverend Bill Larson of the Metropolitan Community Church, was left for hours in full view of the crowd of bystanders and survivors on the street below. But we'll get to him later. The blaze would later claim the lives of three more, bringing the total to 32, not including the 15 others who were injured, many of whom were left permanently disfigured. For just shy of 43 years, the fire at the upstairs lounge would hold the inenviable record of being the greatest mass loss of queer life in America's history. That was until a man walked into a nightclub in another southern state in 2016 and opened fire, killing 49 people and injuring 58 others. For 42 years, 11 months, 18 days, 9 hours and 14 minutes, from the time the buzzer sounded in 1973 until police shot and killed Omar Mateen in 2016 in the Pulse nightclub, the upstairs lounge arson attack, as it would eventually become known, would hold the dubious honour of being the worst mass murder to affect the American queer community. And yet I only heard about it in 2021. But fuck it, some thieves hung out there and you know... This was a queer bar. That's an actual quote. But we'll get to that too. Gay America in the 1970s was an exciting time to be alive. Stonewall had thrust queer people and the queer liberation movement in general into the spotlight. No longer did they feel that they needed to stay in the shadows. The pride movement was sweeping the country. The hippies and their free love philosophy didn't give a shit about who you loved. Or who you fucked. In the late 60s and early 70s, many celebrities came out as bisexual. Although most of them would walk back those claims in later years. In 1993, David Bowie revealed to Rolling Stone magazine that despite engaging sexually with other men in the early 70s, he was a closet heterosexual, going through the motions to connect with the Ziggy Stardust persona, but not really enjoying it. I recall reading somewhere that he once claimed that he regretted announcing that he was bi, because it ultimately hurt his career in America. But extensive Google searches failed to turn up a direct quote by him saying those words. So maybe it's just another example of the Mandela effect at work. Not that it's exactly relevant to the story. Or maybe it is. You see, as out in the open as the gay rights movement was in the years after Stonewall, that didn't mean the community was welcomed with open arms by society at large. Being openly gay at work would get your ass fired. 
admitting that your um friend um flatmate was actually your boyfriend could see your landlord putting you both out onto the street or at the very least you would get avoided or glared at or even openly ostracized by the neighbors in new orleans a jewel in the crown of the south this was especially true despite the city having a thriving gay community with almost two dozen gay bars dotted around the bustling french quarter the gay scene and gay life in general existed largely in private up narrow staircases behind heavy doors those who spoke too loudly of revolution who openly championed gay rights would often be rejected by their own people new orleans they argued wasn't ready for that by speaking out they insisted these troublemaker activists were making life unnecessarily difficult for those who were trying to make an honest living without drawing attention to themselves let's also not ignore the fact that up until 2003 homosexuality was illegal in the state of louisiana and the state's sodomy laws officially meant to prosecute any type of extra or non-marital sex offenses from adultery to bestiality was more often used to prosecute same gender sex also in 1973 anybody caught and charged with offenses could find their names in the local times picayune newspaper in the popular orleans parish records of the day section and you didn't need to be found guilty or even prosecuted to get your name in print merely just charged with alleged crimes So names would be listed behind these alleged crimes and even alleged attempted crimes. Yeah, according to Louisiana's criminal code, an attempted crime against nature could be prosecuted. You didn't even have to actually commit a homosexual offense to land yourself in the shit. No pun intended. Conspiracy or intent to commit could be sufficient if proven. As for the penalty, at one time you were looking at life imprisonment with hard labor for a single offense. By 1973, however, the charge had been reduced to a felony with a minimum of 2 years behind bars. Please note minimum. And even if the charges were dropped due to, for instance, a lack of evidence, your name would often still get into the newspaper next to the annotation no prost which means not prosecuted that pretty much ended life as you knew it in new orleans not long after news of the stonewall riots rocked america phil steve returned home to new orleans after having dropped out of both the seminary and the navy And one night he was chatting with a friend about his plans for the future. He revealed that he was torn between opening a gay bar and opening a gift shop. His friend responded with, "If I only had a dollar, I would buy a beer before I would buy a knickknack." That comment decided it for Phil. And on Halloween night, 1970, on the middle floor of the three-story walk-up on the corner of Iberville and Charter Street, just one block away from the wildly popular Canal Street the upstairs lounge sprang to life official records for the building listed as 604 Iberville Street noted that it was first sold in 1848 so 
It is definitely older than that, much older than the advent of indoor plumbing. As such, the walls that flanked the wooden L-shaped staircase leading up to what would eventually be transformed into the upstairs lounge were snaked with water and waste pipes to and from the upper floors. But where most people saw unsightly plumbing, Phil and Buddy saw a welcoming entrance, with drapery adorning the walls and carpeting on the stairs. At the top, a heavy fire door opened onto a brightly coloured space. Red flocked wallpaper covered the walls. Contemporary, for the time, beefcake posters of Burt Reynolds and other celebrities of the era hung all around, and on the floor, a plush red carpet. As in the stairwell, Buddy and Phil had covered up the aesthetically unappealing parts with more fabric, and any inconveniently located windows were covered by wood panelling. The venue was separated into three sections. In the first section, a bar ran along the Iberville Street side, while at the far end, large floor-to-ceiling windows faced out onto Charter Street below, spanned at regular intervals by horizontal metal rods. Opposite the bar, separated by a large archway, a second section consisted of a seating area with tables and chairs and a small dance floor where the panelled over windows ensured that anyone glancing up from the street outside wouldn't notice anything untoward, like perhaps two men dancing together. The third section, separated from the rest of the venue by a brick wall and another fire door, consisted of a cosy cabaret theatre, complete with tables and chairs, wall drapery and a small stage, with a backdrop that obscured the back wall and a door leading out onto an open-air rooftop area. The theatre would often play host to gender-crossing melodramas, or Nelly-dramas, as they became known, and these proved wildly popular. Many of the regulars would often star in these shows, and they became a highlight of the upstairs lounge's entertainment schedule. In 1971, the then leader of the Gay Liberation Front, Reverend David Solomon, approached Phil and explained that the New Orleans chapter of the Metropolitan Community Church, the world's first gay-affirming congregation that had been founded in Los Angeles in 1968 by Reverend Troy Perry, and had spread to many cities across the United States, including New Orleans, had been struggling to find a regular venue to hold their services. He asked that the church could make use of the lounge's theatre area on Sunday evenings, and after consulting with their attorneys, Phil agreed. The first service of the MCC New Orleans was held at the Upstairs Lounge on May 19, 1971, led by Deacon Bill Larson and Associate Pastor Mitch Mitchell. And the best of all, they got to use the space for free. The fact that Sunday was also the day of the popular beer bust didn't prove a problem for members of the church. After the service, MCC members would hang around and socialise, sometimes using the opportunity to discuss upcoming social outreach events and programmes that the church organised in the area. As usual, Piano Dave would ensconce himself in front of the piano, and inevitably, his repertoire would end up at the bar's unofficial anthem, United We Stand, by Brotherhood of Man. They'd link arm in arm, sway from side to side, as everybody joined in for the chorus.
You know, there's something to be said about those days and years following Stonewall, where a group of drag queens, trans women, gay men and lesbians finally took a stand against the brutality they endured at the hands of the police. Back then, we were a community. The queer community. Not the segregated bunch of letters we've become, only in the fight for the rights afforded to our particular subset or initial. Somewhere along the way, we forgot that we needed to be united if we were ever going to win the war against oppression and othering. But I digress. Pastor Mitch, a divorced father of two boys, and his partner, Horace Massad, a popular barber amongst the queer community, quickly became regulars at the upstairs lounge, and occasionally Mitch's sons, Dwayne, aged 11, and Steve, aged 8, at the time of the fire, would accompany them to the bar when they were visiting from Alabama, where their mother lived. It was a simpler time, and bringing your kids with you to the pub wasn't unheard of in the 70s. Like I said, it was a simpler time. <laughs> I guess kids could hold their liquor better back in those days. Okay, Gertrude, calm your tits, I'm kidding. But only this about the second part. It was definitely a simpler time. But simpler time or not, certain members of the community, including the rector of St. George's Episcopal Church, Father Bill Richardson, felt that a bar was an inappropriate venue for a church. And he offered the MCC use of St. George's Chapel, again free of charge, which the MCC graciously accepted. But the tradition of heading to the upstairs lounge after the service remained. Not having to pay rent for the use of the chapel certainly helped the church's coffers, and at the beginning of June 1973, the church moved to premises of its own in the Garden District. They were able to rent a double Creole cottage, which served as both a place of worship and Deacon Bill Larson's rectory. But even though the new church premises were even further away from the upstairs lounge, the after-service social tradition continued. In 1992, Queen Elizabeth II of England referred to that year as an Annus Horribilis, a Latin term meaning horrible year. But for the gay community of America, that was 1973. In February of that year, the Mother Church of the MCC in Los Angeles, California was torched. Then a few months later, the National Church in Tennessee also went up in flames. Both buildings were gutted, but fortunately, no one was injured. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, two gay bars were set alight, and a bar in Boston was bombed. And in July, the San Francisco MCC building was also set ablaze. The New Orleans gay community, however, probably thought themselves immune to the turmoil taking place around the country. Who would have thought that New Orleans, a city renowned for fun and frivolity, would ever fall victim to the troubles of those more outspoken cities. The gay community kept a low profile. People went about their business. The city was America's playground. What on earth could possibly happen here? Well, not what. Who? Meet Roger Dale Nunez. It was only in December 1973, five months after the upstairs lounge arson attack took place, 
that the American Psychological Association removed homosexuality from their list of mental disorders. Up until that point, medical professionals would happily tell kids that they were sick, that they were broken, that they were an aberration. Almost 27 years earlier, on February the 22nd, 1947, in the small rural town of Abbeville, Louisiana, 250 kilometers west of New Orleans, which, at the time, had a population of just 9,000 people, Roger Nunez came into the world. There is absolutely bugger all about his youth available online that I could find. But let's go out on a limb here and speculate. Why not? There is a good chance that Roger exhibited certain character traits. It's possible that those traits had his parents, Mansell and Rose, cart him off to a psychiatrist to try and fix him. It's possible that young Roger was one of those kids that was told that he was sick, broken, an aberration. It's widely believed in retrospect that Roger suffered from internalized homophobia. But back then, he would have been diagnosed with sexual orientation disorder. Basically, he was conditioned to believe that his attraction to men went against nature, and being from the Deep South, against God. As soon as he was old enough, Roger would have fled to the big city. He had two choices in Louisiana. Baton Rouge, the state capital, which probably sounded boring as fuck and way too conservative for his liking, or New Orleans, with its reputation as a non-stop party city, the lights, the lifestyle, fucking Mardi Gras. New Orleans' reputation would have probably been irresistible, and he would have been drawn to it like a moth to a flame. On his arrival, he would almost certainly have been dazzled by the bohemian atmosphere, starkly different from his hometown. But the reality is that the big city doesn't come cheap. <laughs> Ask any struggling actor who moved to New York or LA to make it big on stage or screen. Out of necessity, Roger turned to a life of crime. According to Robert Feisler, author of Tinderbox, the untold story of the upstairs lounge fire and the rise of gay liberation, Roger was a con man and a part-time hustler with a criminal record. He was well known by patrons of the upstairs lounge, but not for his bubbly attitude or scintillating personality. By most accounts, he was largely regarded as an obnoxious prick. Roger had come from a place where he had had it drilled into him that what he was was morally reprehensible. But he was now in a city where he could be his own person and surround himself with people who shared his inclinations. He was finally in a place where he could relax and come to terms with his sexuality. But the people who, in his mind, should have welcomed him with open arms, wholly rejected him. And then, when you add that good old Southern Baptist mentality into the mix, that the attraction he felt towards other men was sinful and a one-way ticket to hell, the internal conflict must have been soul-crushing. But now he was around other gay Christian men. Surely they would accept him. But his repugnant arrogance didn't win him any fans, and he didn't find the acceptance he was expecting or hoping for. This 
must have been quite the mindfuck and may well have contributed to Roger's internalized homophobia. This deep-seated disdain for possibly even hatred of his own sexuality, and it probably influenced his opinion of those like him. As I said, I could find precious little on the kind of person Roger was. But I suspect Scher's monologue from the Witches of Eastwick would have probably nailed Roger down perfectly. Uh, I think, no, I, I am positive that you are the most unattractive man I have ever met in my entire life. You know, in the short time we've been together, you have demonstrated every loathsome characteristic of the male personality and even discovered a few new ones. You are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid. You have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. That Sunday, June the 24th, the upstairs lounge beer bus was in full swing. This was Robert Van Langendonk's first time at the upstairs lounge, having arrived with lounge regular Jim Hambrink, significantly older than Roger and more than happy to keep the booze flowing. People remembered Robert keeping his shades on the entire time, whether this was because he was in the closet, was there as an escort to Jim, was just too plastered to realize that he had his sunglasses on is unknown, but if the former, he wasn't the only one. John Golding Sr. had recently celebrated his 25th wedding anniversary with his wife Jane. But his marriage wasn't all picket fences and potlucks. He was a father of three, two of whom had already moved out on their own, and the third just 11 at the time. And for decades, he and his wife had had an understanding of sorts. She wouldn't join him on his ventures downtown, and he wouldn't allow his dalliances to interfere with his marriage. According to his youngest son, John Jr., their marriage worked. His mother accepted that his father had another secret life. But there was love there. They shared a bed. They took part in family rituals like spaghetti on Sunday, followed by John kissing Jane goodbye and promising not to be home too late. Jane knew of his friends, like dentist Dr. Perry Waters, and others, but turned a blind eye to the likelihood that the term friends to her probably meant lovers to John. She wasn't oblivious, though. A few months prior, John had been let go from a well-paying job at a public utility company when he was caught in a homosexual act. And this wasn't the first time, but fortunately this one didn't make it into the papers and the family was spared becoming a hot topic of discussion amongst the neighborhood gossips. With John off to do what John did, Jane got John Jr. ready for bed and settled down for a quiet night in. George Bud Matty was a rising star in the entertainment world. He had recently secured a management and recording deal under the stage name Buddy Stevens, and regularly appeared with the house band on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He was also deeply in the closet, for obvious reasons. Coming out would have destroyed his career. The same could be said for his partner, radio personality Rod Wagner. The relationship was never confessed to by either of them, 
but they shared a luxury condo near the lakefront, and the two men were often seen driving around town in their topless Chevy Camaro, sporting the latest fashion, and basically living the kind of life that most gay men, even today, aspire to. Rod didn't join Bud at the lounge that day. To be honest, it wasn't exactly his favourite place. He didn't think the less-than-desirable location fitted with the image of style and opulence he felt the two of them should be portraying to the world for the benefit of their respective careers. However, Bud had committed to pitching in on the piano that night. As Rod pulled the Camaro up to the curb, Bud leaned over, kissed him on the cheek, and skipped up the stairs. Rod watched him go, and as Bud disappeared around the bend in the staircase, Rod put the car into gear and drove away. It seemed like a normal Sunday, maybe a little more celebratory considering it was the final day of Pride weekend. When Roger entered the bar, he was already pretty well watered, and it didn't take him long to begin flitting about the place, bouncing from group to group, being his usual insufferable self until he eventually flopped down at a table where one of the regulars, Michael Scarborough, sat with friends. Roger became increasingly annoying, but seemed to be paying special attention to his harassment of Michael. Eventually, Michael lost his shit completely and sprang to his feet, his fist already in mid-flight. The punch connected Roger square on the jaw breaking it as it turned out, and the impact sent Roger tumbling backwards onto the floor. According to two separate witnesses, Roger glared at Michael and growled, I'm going to burn you out. Buddy, seeing what was going on and having had his fair share of experience with Roger's bullshit in the past, turned to Rusty and said, get him the fuck out. And the fuck out was precisely where Roger suddenly found himself. Livid at the indignity of his unceremonious expulsion from the upstairs lounge, Roger walked to a nearby Walgreens, an American pharmacy chain store for those not familiar with the company. Approaching the counter, he asked the attendant for a tin of Ronsonol, a popular lighter fluid. Back in 1973, Ronsonol was sold in three sizes, a small 5 fluid ounce or 150 molten, a medium 8 fluid ounce or 235 molten, and a large 12 fluid ounce or 350 molten. He requested the smallest tin, but was told that it was out of stock, so he purchased the next size up. Elsewhere, Regina was rushing home to get the checkbook to cover dinner with the boys a round trip of just 10 minutes. While at the bar, Reginald was trying to have a conversation with a very drunk Adam. Not an easy task, considering Adam had been drinking for five hours straight without eating a goddamn thing. According to one account published on BuzzFeed by Robert Feisler, some people claimed that Adam was so pissed he could barely get up off his stool merely giggling and nodding at whatever Reginald had said, but no said to contribute anything meaningful, or indeed coherent. Nearby at the piano, Piano Dave was playing his heart out. Beside his regular gig at the Marriott, 
He supplemented his income with the coins and notes dropped into his chip jar. And he made sure that he earned every dime. But his playing at the upstairs lounge was more a labor of love than just another gig. Needed to pay the rent. These were his people. And he was their guy. A, quote, gay pied piper, end quote, as Feisler would later write. Mitch and Horace were discussing the upcoming charity drive for a local children's hospital with a group of fellow MCC members. They weren't planning on staying much longer. On their way to the bar, they had dropped Dwayne and Steve off at a nearby movie theatre and needed to go fetch them before heading home for dinner. Francis Dufresne found himself really enjoying the company of Eddie Warren immensely, and he took it as a good sign that he got on well with Eddie's mother and brother. He didn't really care about how the brothers made their money. That kind of judgmental attitude rarely featured at the upstairs lounge. The lounge folk were like a family, and Francis was known to take two buses from the suburbs to get to be able to hang out with his family, even if only for a few hours once a week. The atmosphere was jovial, the booze was flowing. More than just a handful would be suffering some monumental hangovers in the morning. But it was all good. Family. What they didn't know, however, was that Roger Nunez had returned, standing at the bottom of the stairs, the brown paper bag containing his Walgreens purchase in his hand. And this is where things get gruesome. Okay, so this is where we are going to pause things. It seems as good a cliffhanger as any, and I'm sure I've made Dickens immensely proud. I did promise I would explain myself as to why the split. Well, firstly, even I was having a tough time getting through it from start to finish without suffering a complete meltdown because of the emotional roller coaster. And secondly, it turns out that this case is way more intense than I initially realized. Just as I was finishing the script, I uncovered new evidence that introduced a very unexpected twist in this already sordid tale. So, I'm tweaking the second half of the script and part two will come out as soon as I am done. And to make up for the two-parter, I'll be hosting a live stream on Discord once part two has dropped where we can discuss any questions you have. So if you haven't already, Get yourself onto Discord and check out the events channel for more information on this once details have been finalized. Until then, keep well, stay safe, and see you on the server.